0: Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. This week, we take a look back at a shocking crime near the Appalachian Trail and speak to the author of a book that re-examines the case.
1: It became actually the first official federal hate crime in the United States.
0: We also sample a beloved Lenten staple made in Charleston, West Virginia. It's a Yugoslavian fish stew that has a little bit of everything.
2: Uh, Salmon, swordfish, uh, mahi-mahi. Um, catfish. There's always calamari and shrimp and
0: scallops in there, too. And we talk with the poet laureate of Blair County, Pennsylvania, who invented the sonnet.
3: I like the idea of capturing this moment, a small moment that shows a sort of larger dedication to community and, and humanity.
0: You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. In the summer of 1996 in Shenandoah National Park, two women, Julie Williams and Lolly Winans, were murdered not far from the Appalachian Trail. The case remains unsolved today. Journalist Catherine Miles wrote about the murders in her book, Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. The book goes beyond true crime, though, and wraps in Miles' personal experiences and the specter of violence in the outdoors, a place where people go to find peace and solitude. I spoke with Miles. Warning for listeners. Some of this conversation gets into violence, sexual assault, and other difficult topics. It's about 15 minutes long. For people who don't know about the 1996 homicides, can you kind of give us the nuts and bolts of what happened on the Appalachian Trail there Was it in Shenandoah National Park?
1: It was in Shenandoah National Park, and it was just off of the Appalachian Trail. So Lolly and Julie uh, were both real just wilderness leaders, and they had met the summer before at a really revolutionary outdoor program called Woods Women. They fell head over heels in love. Um, And I think it's really important to remember that this was 1996. This was a long time before anyone really kind of felt comfortable coming out in a public way, especially somewhere like the upper Midwest, which is where they were located. So they had some challenges in terms of trying to figure out how to navigate this relationship, whether or not they wanted to navigate a same-sex relationship. But, uh, but they did really sort of both commit to it, and they spent the next calendar year um, in a long-distance relationship, getting to know each other, trying to figure out sort of how to be in the cultural space that was this time period. Um, At the end of what had been Lolly's last semester of her college experience, so this is May of 1996, uh, the two were living about five hours apart. Julie was in Vermont. Lolly was in Maine at Unity, the college that I would go on to teach at. And so the school year had wrapped up. They were both about to embark upon very busy summers. And so they decided that what they really wanted to do was take sort of an easy, breezy backpacking trip that would give them time to recommit reconnect as a couple, kind of take a little bit of a breather before the hectic summer season. And so they picked Shenandoah National Park, knowing that, first of all, the weather was a lot more reliable there than it is here in Maine in May, where, you know, <laughs> snow is still a possibility. And they also knew that that not only did the Appalachian Trail run through the park, but there were also a lot of, you know, other trails and um, things that would allow them to have an experience where it wasn't really about endurance and it really wasn't about skill so much as it was about recreation. Um about a week into their trip we think um 5 to 7 days into their trip they were brutally assaulted at their backcountry campsite. Um they were both murdered. We believe that Julie was sexually assaulted and then that really led to just this sort of impossibly difficult and confusing and convoluted and flawed investigation that continues today.
0: Yes, the investigation has yet to conclude. And in part, it seems because law enforcement authorities really singled out an individual early on and and kind of pursued a case against him. Whereas your book, suggest maybe they shouldn't have been so quick to rush to prosecution necessarily or rush to close off other potentialities. Can you talk a little bit about what you found?
1: Sure. So in 1997, July of 1997, so about 14 months after Lolly and Julie were murdered, A young man named Daryl David Rice was in Shenandoah National Park. His father lived right outside of the park, and he would regularly spend a lot of time cycling there. And he had, by all accounts, including his own, several very severe psychological challenges and issues that he was dealing with most notably bipolar schizophrenia. So his life in July of 97 had been completely unraveling. He was not getting treatment for these psychological disorders. He was sort of at his wits end. And in one particular weekend in July, he had been up for two or three days straight, um, was very sort of agitated and was driving through the park and he saw a female cyclist. And he um, drove past her several times. He shouted obscenities at her. He uh, threw a soda bottle at her and uh, at one point, you know, succeeded in running her off the road. Um, She, you know, was understandably terrified about this and got help. And rangers managed to get a hold of him before he left the park. And as soon as they apprehended him, the rangers were convinced that he had murdered Lolly and Julie the summer before. And at that point, really shifted all of their investigation onto him. And I should say, just just by way of sort of clarifying and and, and contextualizing here, when violent crime occurs in national parks, those investigations are the dual purview of both the FBI and the National Park Service police. And so those two law enforcement agencies, which, do not have a lot in common with each other and have very, I think, different sort of cultural expectations. Those two agencies have to come together during these crimes. And I think that's part of what makes these crimes so difficult to, to successfully solve and close is, are these culture clashes. Um, but anyway, both the FBI and the Park Service Police immediately began to focus on Daryl David Rice and really began to shift their investigation exclusively to him at that point.
0: So Daryl Rice was indicted in 2001. But ultimately, federal officials couldn't gather enough of a case to really take him to trial. So that was dismissed, I guess. And your investigation kind of points in different directions. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned through your research?
1: Sure. So in 2001, as you said, Daryl Rice was formally indicted. And at that point, the attorney general for the U.S. was John Ashcroft under The Bush administration. And he saw in this particular case an opportunity to test out brand new hate crime legislation. So, in the indictment, which was a capital indictment, right, a death penalty indictment, it became actually the first official federal hate crime in the United States. And at that point, it also became a hugely political and politically charged case. The FBI, at best, had, and I wouldn't even call it circumstantial evidence, I don't even think it's that strong. They had one very small and very sort of strange piece of evidence that they thought might link Daryl David Rice to the crime, but they had no forensic evidence, right? No hairs, no DNA, anything else. In fact, the DNA that they had taken from the crime scene had excluded Daryl Rice as a suspect in all of it, but had not excluded another known serial killer who was working in the area. So eventually faced with this sort of mounting DNA evidence that continued to exclude Daryl Rice saying that it was sort of, you know, forensically impossible for him to have been connected to any of this evidence that was taken from the crime scene. Uh, They had no choice but to dismiss the case against him. But what I should say, and this is very important, is the federal prosecutors used uh, a a not very well-known legal concept to dismiss the case, and they dismissed it using a concept called without prejudice. And those are usually used in cases where prosecutors are convinced of the guilt Of the defendant they feel like they do have a strong case a case that could persuade a jury or a judge but because of some sort of procedural error that occurred during the trial they feel like they can't get the conviction that they need to get and so by dismissing a case in this way the federal government basically reserves the right to bring the case back against a person at any time so in the case of daryl rice they were on the eve of jury selection for his trial at any point, the federal government can go basically right back to that spot, right, and continue the trial against him. So he lives in this state of double jeopardy, which is how and why the Virginia Innocence Project became involved in the case, because they saw this as a miscarriage of justice against an innocent person. And I was very fortunate to work with the Innocence Project, re-examining this case and reinvestigating it from the beginning.
0: So as you're researching this book and looking into the minutia of this crime, I mean, you describe how Deirdre Enright at the Virginia Innocence Project kind of didn't, like, I wouldn't say she didn't take you seriously, but she took you seriously once she realized, like, how much reading you'd actually done. You weren't moonlighting on this. This was a serious pursuit. So you're getting pretty deep into this research. I would imagine that stands in direct conflict with your view of um, wilderness and nature, which is kind of like mine is, which is it's a place for escape. It's a place we go to get away from all of society's troubles and our personal troubles. How were you working on this? What What was that journey like for you?
1: Really difficult. You know, as I say in the book, I had started. My tenure at Unity College in the um, fall of 2001. Uh, so, so, literally two days before September 11th, I was barely 27 years old. It was my first college teaching job. And, uh, you know, Unity is a very tight knit community and it's a tight-knit community of, of wilderness lovers um, so you know we would have classes outside we would have classes on the trail or you know that was just sort of a part of our our sort of culture there and so it was the spring of, of 2002 when the the formal announcement of this indictment took place and I saw firsthand how that indictment really impacted the unity community. Lolly at that point had been dead for five years, but she was still very, very present on that campus. She was just such an extraordinary leader and an extraordinary human that, you know, my colleagues were her faculty members and professors and um, her friends had become my friends and so, you know, seeing the the residual trauma not only of her her very untimely death, but also how this indictment brought up all of that again, had made the case sort of doubly personally for me. So, so not only did I really sort of identify with Lolly and Julie in some very profound ways, um, and felt that impact as sort of a, a secondary trauma as a as a female sexual assault survivor, backpacker. But then, you know, to see firsthand how this was impacting people who I had already grown to love, really, really made this very real for me. So when I set out on the 20th anniversary to begin working on this as a magazine article, already, you know, the stakes were, were pretty high for me and the emotions were pretty high. And, and one of the things that I try to acknowledge at the start in the book is that I'm very aware that that Influences and effects, and and probably hampers my ability to be wholly objective in all of this because it does really feel like a personal story in some profound ways for me.
0: Yeah, it reads like a personal story as much as a true crime book. The book goes a lot of places. It, It gets into issues involving our public lands. It gets into societal attitudes towards the LGBT community and how they've changed. It gets into systemic issues with law enforcement investigation and it gets into your own personal journey. You know, you, you worked on this for years and you've been promoting it for months. At this remove, what what are kind of your, your biggest takeaways at this point?
1: I think what what was the biggest education for me in all of this was understanding multiple sort of shortcomings or or things that really need to be corrected in our judicial system. I talk in the book about this concept of confirmation bias, which we, we all suffer from. As soon as we believe something is true, we funnel every perception, every idea, every fact through that belief. And I think that's really what happened in the case of these investigators and Daryl Rice. I, you know, it's, it's it's not a surprise. And and I, you know, I, I'm not spoiling anything in the book to say that I really do believe he is innocent. Um, And I do believe that there's another person who I name in the book who is in fact the murderer. Um, So, you know, understanding just how often this happens, there's something like 250,000 cold murder cases in our country right now, those are cases that not only have they not been solved, but they're not being actively investigated anymore. Understanding that, understanding the way in which our country has kind of fallen short with forensic analysis, especially, you know, people might be familiar with hearing stories about, you know, these huge backlogs of rape kits that have never been tested. Um, And so, and then also, frankly, and this was again, very sort of profoundly eye-opening for me is, the number of people incarcerated uh, who in in fact are innocent um, and are in the process of being exonerated and understanding that, you know, for me, I think I really wanted to believe that the judicial system always works, right? And it's objective and it's progressive and it, it, you know, logically comes to a conclusion that can absolutely be defended. And, And understanding now and seeing now how many people are in fact being exonerated, how many people have been wrongly imprisoned has really sort of shaken my sense, not only of you know safety in the wilderness, which this project kind of shook, but also I think some of my um, confidence in the American judicial system.
0: Yeah, I've heard it referred to as the CSI fallacy or law and order fallacy, depending on who you're talking to, that everything just sort of wraps up nice and neat. And that's very much not the case in a lot of cases. Um, yeah,
1: we want it to be right. And we want we want there to be that smoking gun or we want there to be that one piece of DNA that absolutely proves it. But that's so rarely the case, unfortunately. And I think that's that's a very bitter pill for surviving family members and friends to swallow when when they sort of watch these cases kind of languish and go unsolved.
0: Well, Catherine Miles, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us at right Inside Appalachia.
1: Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for, for giving some, some light and attention to this very important case.
0: That was journalist Katherine Miles. Her book is Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. Coming up, we hear about a savory seafood soup made in Charleston, West Virginia, that's so good, you can almost taste it.
4: It's uh, spicy. It's got every kind of seafood, scallops and
0: shrimp, and you know it's just uh, very tasty and it's very filling, actually. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams.
5: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply.
0: If you're in Charleston, West Virginia, General Steak and Seafood is the place to get fresh seafood. Trucks arrive daily with salmon fillets, swordfish, Chilean sea bass, scallops, Chesapeake Bay oysters, and more. And if you want to taste a little of everything in a single dish, pick up a quart of the shop's Yugoslavian fish stew. Locally, it's achieved an almost legendary status, but it didn't start out that way. Bokwe's reporter, Zach Harold has the story. It's lunchtime
6: on the first Friday of Lent, that season when many Christians abstain from mammal meat. So you can imagine how busy it's getting at General Steak and Seafood in downtown Charleston, West Virginia.
2: Give me about six of smaller
6: size. Folks are stopping by to get shrimp, salmon, and cod, but nothing is selling faster than the Yugoslavian stew. Yugo stew, if you're a regular. The shop opened at 10 a.m. with about seven gallons on hand, and now they only have a few quarts left. Oh, it's very good. Philip Michael got one of the last containers. He says he's been eating this stuff for about 20 years now. It's uh, spicy. It's got every kind of seafood: scallops and shrimp, and you know, it's just uh, very tasty and it's very filling, actually. The shop's been getting calls from the time they open from customers like Philip, hoping to reserve a few containers.
2: Sometimes they might be having company, and they might want three quarts or four quarts or or more. Some people buy five or six pints and take them to the office and give everybody one. That's Robin Harmon. He's one of the founders of General Steak and Seafood. It it sells out every day.
6: And it's been this way for over 40 years, back before this current market existed, back when there was still a country called Yugoslavia. Robin and his brother Joe owned a combined restaurant and market a few streets over, as well as a bustling catering business. And even back then, the Harmon brothers were known for having the freshest seafood in town, but they had a problem. In those days, scallops didn't come neatly wrapped and packed on refrigerated trucks. They were air freighted in, in 40 pound sacks. That led to a lot of broken pieces, perfectly edible, but not pretty enough to sell to customers. The operation was also peeling 100 pounds of shrimp a day between all of the businesses, and inevitably some of them looked a little worse for wear.
2: And then everybody wants six and eight ounce center cut pieces of fish, so we have all kinds of end pieces and trimmings. So
6: they had all this perfectly good stuff, too delicious and expensive to throw away. They just didn't have anything to do with it. Then one day they found the solution in a copy of the newly launched Cook's Illustrated magazine. It was a recipe for Dalmatian stew, a recipe from the coastal region of Croatia, then part of Yugoslavia, where a lot of the local diet comes from the ocean.
2: So it was actually a catch-all stew to use a, a lot of local marine life there. And it, and, but I modified it for restaurant use because I wanted everything to be bite-sized and nothing in the shell so that you didn't have to uh, take things out of the shell or peel shrimp and all that kind of stuff. So,
6: Robin made some other changes, too. He added some extra spices and a lot of hot sauce. But perhaps most important, he changed the name.
2: But when you spelled it out, it looked like Dalmatian. So I didn't want the dog thing with it
6: but dalmatian stew by any other name tastes just as delicious though the fish is always fresh robin usually makes the soup base a day or two ahead he starts by speed chopping five onions and throwing them into a pot that's coated with warm shimmering olive oil yeah it
2: looks like i've done it before doesn't
6: it in go several stalks of celery also rough chopped and two whole heads of garlic finely minced then come the spices that's
2: about Volume-wise, about eight ounces of dried parsley.
6: He also adds oregano, basil, and three kinds of pepper, black, white, and red. He measured them out today because a guy with a radio microphone just happened to be hanging around, but usually he just does it by feel.
2: Uh, I, have, I have ways, like when I do the basil and the oregano, I just turn the thing up and I do 10 big pinches.
6: Now he adds some chicken stock and lets the mixture bubble away for a little bit, allowing the flavors to condense. After that, it's several gigantic cans of diced tomatoes and tomato sauce, granulated garlic, sugar, and three, count them, three kinds of hot sauce. Three
2: kinds of pepper, three kinds of hot sauce. Nice little dose of Tabasco, nice little dose of Red Hot. Lastly, Sriracha. Sriracha was actually
6: a pretty exotic ingredient back when Robin first started making this stew in the early 80s. His shop was probably the first place in Charleston to sell it.
2: Yeah, we bought it out of Cleveland. Before you could find it in a grocery store or anything, we sold it over there on Broad Street.
6: And with that, we're done.
2: That is now this.
6: Robin now has the base for tomorrow's Yugo stew. Tomorrow morning, he'll heat it up and add the fish. That's the only part of the recipe that changes from day to day. It really just depends on what comes across the shop's cutting boards.
2: Uh, salmon, swordfish, uh, mahi-mahi, um catfish. There's always calamari and shrimp and scallops in there
6: too. Most of the fish goes in about 10 minutes before the soup is ready to serve. Doesn't take long to cook. The shrimp takes even less time going in the pot for just a couple minutes. Which is great because by that point, people are usually lining up for their containers of Yugo stew. Denise Workman is a substitute teacher at a nearby elementary school. She hopped over on her lunch break.
1: Well, I mean, it's Spicy and delicious, you know, filled with seafood. You know, I have the recipe that was in the paper a few years ago that they shared, um, but I've never tried to make it, but you can't talk this.
6: But Kim Brown, who entered the store just a few minutes after Denise, wasn't so lucky.
3: Oh, darn it. I knew I was probably too late. <laughs> okay, thanks.
6: Thank you. Seems like everybody in town has a hankering for this stuff, except for one person.
2: I just got to where I couldn't... My brother still eats it. The other people who work here still eat it. But they don't make it every day like I do. It's the first thing I do every day when I get here is put that on the stove. I haven't eaten it in years. You know
6: what? That's just more for the rest of us. In Charleston, West Virginia, I'm Zach Harold for Inside Appalachia.
0: That story is part of our Folkways Reporting Project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To see and hear more of our Folkways stories, visit our website, wvpublic.org. We continue to learn more about a recent train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. That wreck has ignited conversations across the country about train safety rules. The people in East Palestine have a more immediate need. They just want to know if it's safe for them to stay in their homes. Some residents are looking to outside researchers for help. Kara Holzapel with the Allegheny Front brings us this story.
7: Emily Wright lives in Columbiana County and is the development director for River Valley Organizing, which is based in East Liverpool, Ohio. The group is trying to coordinate independent soil and water testing and is in touch with researchers at the universities of Pittsburgh and Kentucky. Wright says, though the U.S. EPA says its monitoring indicates the air there is safe to breathe, she has other concerns since the
8: fires and smoke have dissipated. When the dust settles, the air quality, of course, isn't going to be still affected. But they let people back in their homes before they did completed soil and water testing. People's homes still have all of the contaminants on the surfaces. So when you sit on the couch and, you know, they go up in the air when you, you know, dust. So our major concern is that and residents are reporting um, to us and on the East Palestine talk page, like the Facebook pages. They're showing that they're waking up with rashes. They're having respiratory symptoms that are worsening.
7: Why does your group think independent testing is necessary
8: in East Palestine? As we're nonpartisan, nonprofit, you know, we're finding that a lot of the programs, depending on what administration they're under, totally change with that. You know, the EPA is one of them. I don't care what any politician says or what letters behind their name. All of them have failed. And we keep hearing the railroad had safety regulations that were loosened under the Trump administration. Well, we've been under a new administration for two years and they're still loosened. As someone that, like my father has bilateral asbestosis from working at Weirton Steel. You know, I have family members with multiple myeloma after working a nuclear power plant. And my family has literally given our lives to these industries. We work in these industries. We live by these industries. We get it. We're all for commerce, but what we're not for anymore is our bodies in Appalachia and in these areas being used uh, for the commerce of the United States. This is why independent testing needs to be done. And this is why existing institutions need to be checked. And we're not against government and we're not against the EPA. We just want them to do their job and actually serve the people.
7: Is it that you don't trust the EPA's and Ohio EPA's test results? Or is this like additional testing?
8: I think it's more additional testing. It's not, it's not that they think that the EPA's test results are bad. It's that, are they testing for everything they should? And did they test for everything they should before they let people in their homes? And the answer is no. So the trust is broken. So our concern is that if people don't see some independent testing done and other people coming in, it will spread further misinformation. It will cause hysteria where it doesn't need to be. We're actually trying to do the the opposite of that right now.
7: And you're focusing on soil and water testing.
8: Yes. Our focus with soil and water is really important, especially in the long term. Um, East Palestine, I don't know if you know about Northern Columbiana County in general, but we're mostly farming communities and small businesses. So we're surrounded by farms. We're trying to make sure that focus isn't lost for the community. Maybe the media calms down on this and People forget about East Palestine because they're not from here. in Pennsylvania and Darlington, where they were affected. And we want to be here.
7: Emily Wright is the development director for River Valley Organizing, which is trying to coordinate independent soil and water testing in East Palestine. There's more on the train derailment at Alleghenyfront.org. I'm Carol Holsopel.
0: The toxic chemical spill in East Palestine, Ohio, wasn't the first time pollutants have made their way into Appalachia's air, soil, and water. Lately, we've been hearing about a group of chemicals known as PFAS that some people call forever chemicals. They seem to be turning up everywhere, including West Virginia. Shepard Snyder has more.
5: PFAS are a group of around 10,000 man-made chemicals that have been used to manufacture both industrial and consumer products for around 80 years. More commonly known as forever chemicals, they're known to cause health problems like liver damage, higher cholesterol, cancer, and a weakened immune system, among others. Most famously, PFAS chemicals have been used to create industrial-grade firefighting foam and have been used by companies like Chemours and DuPont to create Teflon. But they're also found in products like food packaging and water-resistant jackets.
3: These products end up in landfills, many of them, and the landfills can have leachate that get into the ground.
5: That was Jenna Dodson, staff scientist at the West Virginia Rivers Coalition. She was among the panelists at a public conference addressing PFAS earlier this month in Shepherdstown, located in the eastern panhandle. Levels of PFAS chemicals above the federal EPA's health advisories have been found in 130 raw water supplies statewide, with the state's Departments of Environmental Protection and Health and Human Resources currently testing the state's treated water systems as well. In 2019, the CDC reported that state residents living near the Shepherd Field Air National Guard Base in Martinsburg had blood concentrations of PFAS higher than the national average. Bases like that use the PFAS firefighting foam, and it's believed the chemicals contaminated much of the local waterways. High levels of the chemicals were found in Martinsburg's Big Springs Water Filtration Plant in 2016.
3: They're in our waterways, it's in our soil, it's in our air because it also travels via air deposition, and so that's why they're so ubiquitous, And, and again, localized contamination
8: can occur.
5: In the region alone, there are 36 raw water supplies that have been identified as having unsafe amounts of the chemicals. That area, along with the Ohio River Valley, are considered PFAS hot zones in West Virginia, though they've been found in water supplies statewide. Dodson was joined by Brent Walls of the Potomac River Keeper Network. He's studying PFAS effects on the Potomac River's aquatic ecosystem by surveying small-range fish species in the area. He discovered some fish in the nearby Antietam Creek in Maryland had elevated amounts of the chemicals in their tissue.
4: That was extremely alarming because... Smallmouth bass is a popular recreational fish species, not only for catch and release, but also for families
5: and communities to um, take home to eat. Health advisory guidelines released by the EPA in 2022 say anything above .004 parts per trillion for PFOA or .02 parts per trillion for PFOS are considered unsafe. PFOA and PFOS are two common PFAS subgroups.
4: That would be one drop of PFOS in 20 Olympic sized pools. Uh, that's the kind of you know visualization of how small of an amount of this pollutant has an impact.
5: Walls is worried state and local agencies wouldn't be able to properly measure and treat PFAS because of how little amounts are needed to infiltrate waterways to contaminate
4: them. Those tests are expensive, and um, even if the facilities are able to find a lab to provide the analysis, then they have to find the resources to address the situation.
5: That's a concern echoed by John Bresland, one of the local citizens in attendance at the Shepherdstown conference Walls and Dodson spoke at. He's also a member of the town's water board.
9: I know that the current wastewater plant that we have
5: will
0: not be able to, to remove PFAS, so we need, we need to get some guidance from EPA as to how do we if and when the time comes.
5: Others in attendance, like David Lillard, were concerned about both his health as well as the health of the local environment. We're a headwater state. Water that
4: flows from our mountains is not only our drinking water, it is a drinking water for people in the Ohio Valley
5: and in the Potomac River Basin. It's 5 million people just in the Washington, D.C. area. In the state legislature, bills have been introduced in both the House and Senate, That would require the State Department of Environmental Protection to create an action plan to address PFAS chemicals, have state manufacturing facilities monitor and self-report PFAS discharge, and would enforce a limit on said discharges statewide. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Shepard Snyder in Martinsburg.
0: For someone with dementia, or for their family, the possibility of getting confused while out and about can be pretty worrisome. Fortunately, more communities are beginning to respond. St. Albans, West Virginia was recently recognized for offering services and support for people with dementia and Alzheimer's disease. The town recently held a dementia-friendly day to spotlight the new designation. As part of a series on elder care, WVPB's Eric Douglas spoke with St. Albans Vice Mayor Walter Hall.
4: What does that mean? What what Mm -hmm. is a dementia-friendly city?
10: So the dementia friendly means that we've reached out to our community partners. Our community partners in any community are our churches, our nonprofits, uh, our grocery stores, our police, our fire, our city employees, public works. So to become dementia friendly, we developed a plan of uh, educating our community on becoming dementia friendly first experience we had was at the Hansford senior center and it was called a hands-on experience and we invited the general public and we had some professionals there to speak about neurologists spoke Uh, uh, we had uh, doctors nurses hospice Alzheimer's and we had a hands-on experience and we had close to a hundred Wow. R- folks from the community show up for that event.
4: Let's talk about that training for for businesses though you you go into this first visit business and you're you're teaching the employees if somebody comes in who's agitated or doesn't make sense whatever mm-hmm. you, this might be dementia what, what are mm-hmm. they supposed to do? How do they react to that we we uh, as an employee.
10: They are to recognize the signs of of dementia. And we have the pamphlets and the brochures in the restaurant to recognize the top 10 signs of of dementia. And to do that as an employee is to be more patient, uh, uh, be more understanding, and develop an eye contact with the caregiver. And we have these cards, and then there are dementia friendly St. Albans with our logo, and on the back of it, please be patient for my loved one is suffering from dementia. Hmm. They may repeat their questions. Please be patient. And that's on the back of the business card. So the caregivers come into a dementia-friendly, trained business, and when the employee comes up, the first thing they are to do as a caregiver is to hand that card to the employee so that they have – you don't mention it or discuss it in front of them because our parents and our loved ones can hear – they sure. have a, some understanding of what you're saying and can become quite agitated. Just hand them a little business card. Now there's a whole different level so, of understanding in that.
4: Okay, you're, you're talking about a caregiver takes, takes a loved one out to dinner. Yes. I, get them out of the house. Get absolutely. Get some fresh
10: air. It's important to interact with other humans. Sure, sure. Absolutely. It's our nature.
4: Um, and so so they walk into this restaurant and just casually – the, the caregiver hands a, a business card to the, to the waiter or waitress, to the, to the staff, mm-hmm. and that gives them a heads up, hey, this person mm-hmm. has dementia. I need to treat them a little differently.
10: Now every city employee, police, fire, public works, our water and sewer, all these folks have been trained on how to identify the signs or understand what's going on with one, that it's not drugs or it's not a, a mental um, uh, health right. issue. Uh, we have restaurants calling us every day now, wanting to sign up for this. Fantastic! And uh, we have a, a crew now that can go and perform this training.
4: Yeah, it's all about education. It,
10: it's educating our community, uh, uh, shops, restaurants, markets, our streets, on our neighbors, or our, our everyone. And uh, six years, we have a, a nice following and a nice group. We all help ourselves. We have to look out for one another, and by nature, we as humans have to interact with others, and we invite you to encourage you to bring your mom and dad on out. Bring your grandpa, grandma, bring them on out. Go to these 13, 14 businesses. They understand what's going on. Make your reservation.
4: So, I mean, and I think you told me before, at the time at least that you started, there was only... One other city, and that was in Minnesota, maybe?
10: Yes, it was in—I wish I could remember the town. But, uh, yeah, there was one uh, city, one community in Minnesota that had gone through the dementia-friendly training. Uh, There's a Dementia-Friendly America um, that has their own set of uh, rules, and then we have the uh, Alzheimer's Association has— their own set okay. uh, well, I, I guess uh, guidelines, I should say, not rules or guidelines of what to follow to become a dementia-friendly community. And we got the support of both organizations. And we're now recognized as dementia-friendly community and stamped and approved
0: by each organization. That was Walter Hall speaking with Eric Douglas about Dementia-Friendly Day in St. Albans. It's part of WVPB's series, Getting Into Their Reality, Caring for Aging Parents, to read more and to check out the rest of the series, visit wvpublic.org.
10: I see the sunrise creeping in Everything changes like the desert wind Here she comes in
9: don't look
0: Aaron Murphy is coming up on the anniversary of her first year as the poet laureate of Blair County, Pennsylvania. Murphy is the author of 10 poetry collections, the editor of three anthologies, and the inventor of the demisonnet. Producer Bill Lynch talked with Murphy about inventing a new form. Finding poetry in the daily news.
3: Uh, I was thinking a good poem to start with um, is a poem that is set in Appalachia, as we say in the northern part of Appalachia, although as a kid, I lived in Appalachia (laughs) in the southern part. But yeah, I have a poem called Illuminated, which is about the supermoon that you may remember from April of 2021. Here's a poem about that, Illuminated. The night of the closest supermoon in 70 years. I scrolled through Facebook posts of my friend's photos. Peter's was best. The moon floated like an illuminated balloon above a red barn in roaring spring. I'm ashamed to say how long it took me to look outside at the real thing. It's lovely. (sighs) Thanks. So, yeah that that ties into that idea of technology dominating our lives so much that sometimes we forget, you know that there's a real world out there.
9: right. I'm gonna to get to this thing first because it's the thing that jumped out to me when I was doing a little, a little bit of research. you know i've I've spoken to all sorts of people over the years. i've I've talked to to rock stars. I've talked to politicians and plumbers. I've never spoken to anyone who's invented a new part of language, right <laughs> So maybe you could explain about the I guess the demi sonnet and how you invented such a thing.
3: You know most of your listeners probably know that a sonnet, a traditional sonnet has 14 lines. Uh, so I developed uh, a form called that I call a demi sonnet. It's half of a sonnet. so it's seven lines. And other than that, uh, what the form um, has is, it's sort of a, a sparse um, sparseness to it narrative is pared down to kind of the most essential elements. And then it ends in a near rhyme or a slant rhyme, or it could be a full rhyme. So when we think of rhymes, we tend to think like cat and hat, right. But sometimes mm-hmm. there's more of a, a slant rhyme there. I'll share a, um, a demi sonnet with you. And you can listen for that kind of near rhyme, the almost rhyme of the poem. This also takes place uh, in a small town in Appalachia. I live um, just south of Altoona, Pennsylvania. And this poem is called Small Town. My neighbor returns from this week's chemo. Her friend, a local judge, pedals up on a three speed. She's here to administer a foot massage. I don't want much. To live in a town where people ride bikes with baskets, a place where people show up. Take your beleaguered feet in their hands and rub. So I I like the idea of capturing this moment, um, the small moment that shows a sort of larger dedication to community and and humanity. Um, The near rhyme there would be the up and rub. So we don't tend to think of those as rhyming, but the words do suggest each other. So in my demi sonnets, uh, they end with a a fuller and near rhyme or sometimes called a slant rhyme. And the way it came about, um, to get back to your question, is a lot of times poets go and do, uh, writers in general do these residencies where you can go away for sometimes months at a time to just focus on your own writing, which is a wonderful experience. I've, I've had that experience before, it's great. When my children were younger, it was hard to get away um, for long stretches of time like that. So I said to my husband one uh, spring semester, as our semester was ending, I said, I want a DIY a residency and I just want to be at home, but I want to be able to wake up in the morning and focus on my writing for, you know, several hours without interruption. So you get to like get the kids off to school, handle all their questions about, you know, you know what am I taking for lunch? Where's my library book? You have to sign my permission slip, you know, all of that. So I thought, oh, I'll do that for a week, maybe two weeks. Well, the two weeks turned into four weeks, turned into six weeks. And I was waking up every morning between, you know, 5, 30, 6 a.m. And I would work until noon, one o'clock every day without interruption. And during that period, I developed this very compressed form. I thought, oh, maybe it'll be, you know, a small series, you know, maybe a dozen poems or so. Well, the next thing I knew, I had written 120 of them and really started dreaming in them. Like everything became like potential material uh, for this form. I put them away for six months, stuck them in a drawer. So I thought, you know, sometimes you don't know when you first written something if it's, you know, even worth salvaging. Uh, and I looked, I opened it back up six months later, took a look, and I thought, oh, these are actually pretty good. And I, uh, Paired it down to about eighty of them, and that became my first collection of demi sonnets.
9: You're a, a poet laureate. Becoming a poet laureate kind of suggests a journey. So this is the part where you get a chance to tell me your life story in a compacted form.
3: <laughs> yeah, once upon a time. Uh, so my life story. Um, yeah. So I'm a I'm a poet laureate of Blair County, Pennsylvania, which is which is a terrific honor. Born in New England, grew up mostly in Richmond, Virginia, uh, for a spell lived uh, outside of Asheville, uh, North Carolina, and I've been living in central slash western Pennsylvania for the past 18 years. Uh, So I started writing as a kid. Uh, My mom cleaned out her attic recently and found some really brilliant uh, stories I wrote in second grade, including one about a horse playing the piano. It's really great. I also had this stretch in fifth grade where I was really into Race car drivers. And so I read everything I could read about indie race car driving and wrote a lot of poems about that. I don't have any of this memorized. <laughs> but since that time, uh, most of the poems I write have to do uh, some are, you know, sort of personal uh, memoir type narrative, but also usually a lot of awareness of writing itself and and. I try to have like close attention to language. Uh,
9: something I was reading about you it says that uh, you worked in news for a part of your life. That's interesting to me because news writers, feature writers, sports writers, are often reaching for the poetic, right? You know, <laughs> yes. they don't always get there, right? But right. Uh, poets reaching for news—is that something that you give a shot at?
3: Yes, I love incorporating uh, current events. Uh, into my work. I have a poem that was published just the other day that has to do with the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Um, So I do, I, I, I really like to respond to what's happening in the world, you know, as it's happening. That's a big uh, source of inspiration for me. Uh, Working as a news editor in itself required uh, some poetry. I mean, what is a headline but poetry, right? You're trying to capture the entire story in as few words as possible, and um, we used to, when I, when I was news editor um, of the local daily paper uh, in Maryland, we used to win all kinds of contests for our headline writing. <laughs> if you want to win headline contests, hire a poet.
9: <laughs> Artists leave legacies. Uh, do you have a particular poem that you're hoped you're, that you remembered for?
3: That is such an interesting question. Well, I have a poem that uh, won the Rattle uh, Poetry Prize Reader's Choice Award this past year. And uh, I always say I'm, I read that whenever I get the chance because it's a single poem, but it won a $5,000 prize. And what's nice about Rattle is that when they, they let you know if you've won this prize, they also include a lot of the commentary that people wrote about the poem. And so that's really rewarding to, to know that it had that impact um, on people. So I'll, I'll read you that poem if you want. It's called the Internet of Things. And for those who don't know, the Internet of Things is the networking capability that allows information to be sent and received by objects and devices. It's the way all of our gadgets talk to each other, basically. So millions and millions of devices are communicating with each other um, all of the time. So this is called the Internet of Things. It's basically an economics term. The low tide riverbed silt of things. The cloud swept distant hill of things. The open bedroom window in spring of things. The moonlit cricket symphony of things. The pitter patter tin roof rain of things. The 50 year marriage loose skin of things. The clipped winter light of things. The stippled lymph node of things. The grief. Oh, the grief, the brief ecstatic flight of things. So I guess if I had to pick a poem that I would like to be remembered for, at least as of today, I would say that poem, The Internet of Things, subject to change.
0: (laughs) Aaron, thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Thanks for chatting with me, Bill.
0: That was Aaron Murphy, Poet Laureate of Blair County, Pennsylvania. We're always looking for new writers with something interesting to say. Do you have a favorite Appalachian poet? Tell us about him. Write us at InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org.
10: Stone. And it rests on the floor of the scene.
0: next time thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia our theme music is by Matt Jackford other music this week was provided by Mary Hot, David Mayfield Tyler Childers Chris Stapleton Sierra Farrell and Lucero Bill Lynch is our producer our executive producer is Eric Douglas Kelly Libby is our editor our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at inappalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia
5: is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and 6 master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu.